Hey friends, welcome to our Law Gospel devotional for this Tuesday for the upcoming third weekend of Advent. Uh, the last couple of weeks that we've gathered here to dig into the text of Scripture, looking at it through the lens of Law and Gospel, we have uh, really focused on two Old Testament passages from the book of Isaiah. They were the Old Testament lectionary text for the previous weeks. Well, this week I decided to switch it up and instead take the lectionary text. And so that's what we'll be doing today. And boy, do we have a doozy. Let's go ahead and get started now so that we can uh, dive in. So here we go, our Law Gospel devotional for the third Sunday of Advent. First Thessalonians 5, 12 through 24, the epistle text in lectionary series A. And what I've entitled this is, This is God's Will for You, because this passage indeed has those very words within it. And I got to tell you, folks, if there's anything that I have gotten questions about over my nearly 14 years of pastoral ministry, it is this question, what is God's will for me? And usually what people are, are referring to is very specific things. They want to know what God's will is for their, uh, whether they should marry someone or whether they should take a particular job or whether they should move to a different place or whether they should go to a different school or what, whatever the case may be. There's, there's often been lots of fretting about how to determine what God's will is for one's life. And the truth is, as I've often pointed out to people over the years, um, the scriptures don't speak specifically to Jill's life or Bob's life or Billy Bob's life or whoever, uh, and they don't speak very specifically to my life. There's no word in scripture that says, Eric, thus saith the Lord, do this or do that. Rather, we're given sort of general principles for how we ought to conduct ourselves or what we ought to believe. That gets more specific, especially when it comes to what we should believe about God and how we should see our neighbor. But it doesn't give us the info about who we should marry. It doesn't give us the info about what job we should take. Instead, through books like the Proverbs and um, various other parts of scripture, the wisdom literature, we're given general guidelines and principles. Well, in our text today, you're going to see that, indeed, everything that's mentioned today really applies to everybody and is something that everybody should be called to pursue as Christians. And it's not complicated. It's not like this insane math formula before this poor man in our picture. But, but actually, it's pretty simple to understand what's meant. But as we'll see, it's not so simple to fulfill. So, with that being said, first, let me give you the context or the major issues that are addressed in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, first of all, Paul is very intent in this book, maybe more than anything else, on filling in gaps about the second coming of Christ. There seems to be an awful lot of confusion about that in the Thessalonian church. Indeed, there's not a single chapter in this writing where he does not address that particular issue. Just as there's lots of confusion about the second coming today, there was lots of confusion in the early church and in the first century. And specifically, uh, one of those areas of confusion had to do with what happened to people that had died before the second coming of Christ had actually taken place. There was a teaching going around that if you didn't live long enough to see Jesus come back, that you were out of luck that you weren't getting into heaven and that you were just dead in the ground or even worse, maybe condemned. 
So this was a major problem that you can see Paul address in this letter. There's a lot of confusion about that. On the other hand, there is, well, confusion on the other side, and that is people saying to themselves, well, Jesus is coming back any day, and so I don't really have to worry about it. I don't have to do much. And so you have Paul exhorting people to still go to work, to not take advantage of people's generosity, to not be lazy. You, you see him addressing this in passages like chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, and chapter 4. You also see him exhorting them to trust their leaders, which suggests that there was some some issues with trust amidst the people, or at least that they were looking to Paul only and not trusting the leaders that had been installed there upon Paul's departure. And then finally, you're going to see uh, in this letter that Paul is very concerned to assure them of their final salvation, which suggests that they may not have had a whole lot of assurance. So with all that said, let's get to our text, which I am calling a jungle of imperatives, because boy, oh boy, is this text chock full of them. Let's take verses 12 through 22 first. Paul writes, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them. The word in Greek is to see them, to appreciate them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, imperative. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, imperative. Encourage the faint-hearted, imperative. Help the weak, imperative. Be patient with them all, or long-suffering with them all, imperative. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, imperative. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone, imperative. Rejoice always imperative. Pray without ceasing imperative. Give thanks in all circumstances imperative. For this is the will of God. There's those words in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit imperative. Do not despise prophecies imperative, but test everything imperative. Hold fast what is good imperative. Abstain from every form of evil imperative. Like I said, a jungle of imperatives. I believe there are 15 imperative statements or words in just these 10 verses. Quite astonishing. And Paul says these imperatives are the will of God for your life, how we ought to conduct ourselves, how we ought to live as Christians with each other and in the world. Now, what is the will of God for your life? Well, let's just go over that, well, through picture form or GIF form, sorry, or GIF, depending on who you are and what you prefer. Um, well, first, of course, you have the admonition to respect our elders. Now, it is, it is true that that initial admonition to respect those in authority above them is not an imperative, but it certainly has that feel to it as Paul requests it of them. He doesn't command them as an imperative is a command, but he requests that they do so and with pretty strong words. You have, of course, the, the imperative to live at peace with one another, to make sure that we're doing everything we can to foster peace in the midst of the body of Christ. You have, at the same time, the imperative to admonish the idle, to make sure that people aren't just lazing around in uh, anticipation of the second coming of Jesus. And that was indeed a problem in the Thessalonian church. 
You have the imperative to, to encourage the faint-hearted and to help the weak, you know, and I can't help but think of the picture of carting off somebody or helping somebody who's limping with an injury off the court or off the field, as I think some of you know. I'm a bit of a sports fan and especially a basketball fan. It's, it's the idea of coming alongside somebody. That's what the very word encourage means. You have the imperative that we be long-suffering with all. And as Smeagol so elegantly puts it for us here, so realistically, we must have patience, but we hates it. Oh, patience. You know, the old adage, if you prayed for patience, just wait. It's uh, the struggles are coming. The temptations are coming. The difficulties are coming. But Paul says we ought to be long-suffering with all. We ought to basically turn the other cheek, not return evil for evil, and to always do good for those around us as the rock on a rare occasion, uh, basically shows us what that looks like here to turn the other cheek. You also have the imperative to rejoice always. And boy, this lady does seem to be absolutely filled to the brim with oh so much joy. You have the imperative to pray without ceasing, that famous set of words, that little statement that has been used oh so often to turn prayer from a gift into a burden that we're always having to do it or else. You have, of course, the imperative to give thanks always in all circumstances. That is, even in the midst of persecution, as the church was definitely facing that, even in the midst of trial and difficulty to be thankful people, to give thanks. You have the imperative not to quench the Holy Spirit, not to put out the fire of the Holy Spirit that is given to us by the Word of God, that we must test, we must be able to say in the final analysis when somebody claims that they are presenting the word of God to us, that we will know indeed that it is. That's what he means here in this context by testing prophecies and indeed allowing them to be able to say with Michael Scott here, you're not wrong there. And finally, you have the great imperative to sort of sum it all up. Well, Google used to have this as their motto. I don't know that they do anymore, but abstain from evil. Don't be evil at all. Abstain from evil. So that is a lot of imperatives. Now, going down that list of imperatives, I can't help but uh, want to review what we've gone over in the past, which is the three functions of the law that we see and that we experience as God's people as the law comes to us. First of all, you have what's called often the, the first use of the law within especially my own traditions circles, the Lutheran circles, and that is it curbs us. And that might just be another way of saying it keeps us from being as bad as we may want to be naturally. And of course, the, the great example of that and the way it functions in our life is us speeding down the highway over the speed limit and then seeing a police officer on the side of the road and slowing down to within the speed limit, not because we particularly want to slow down. It's not something that comes from our heart, but it is something that we don't want to pay the penalty for if we're caught. That is the curbing function of the law. Now, of course, there's the third function of the law in the order that we typically go, uh, and that is that it basically, for lack of a better term, it, it coaches us or it guides us. It, it tells us how to best live as Christians. Indeed, this passage is full of those imperatives on how to best live together, to pursue peace, to rejoice and be thankful. All of these things are good things. We all know they are. We hear them and we say amen to them. 
we know we should live like this. But that leads us to the third function of the law. And it really is ultimately what we would say is the primary function of the law or the second use of the law. Um, I just put it in different order because I wanted to, to hit this last, and that is the convicting or condemning use of the law or function. And, and this function of the law shows us our failure to live according to its standards. As we hear these imperatives read out to us, be at peace, rejoice always, help the faint-hearted, encourage the weak among you, admonish the idle. If we hear all this stuff, the way the law functions is not just to tell us this, this is what we ought to do, but we're also sadly reminded that we have not done it and certainly not nearly enough to the standard that we are meant to hold it up to, which is perfection. We always ought to remember, even as these functions are going on, when the, law, when the law of God is preached, it's possible for somebody to hear it and to hear, I'm encouraged to go do these things. I want to go do these things. It's possible for somebody to say, well, I was prone to being impatient with that person that was bothering me. But now, since I've heard this word of trying to be long-suffering, I'm going to try to be long-suffering. But ultimately, we always need to remember, folks, that the law always accuses and so even as the law is presented to us as something good for us to do, indeed it always is, there's always something inside of us that recognizes we don't live up to it. We fall short. That is what's going on here. And indeed, just as we can be encouraged by these words that are all good words, we also recognize the law's accus accusational fingers being pointed at us. And that brings us to a place where we're forced to agree. We're forced to acknowledge we ought to do these things more. Well, then what? Well, good thing we're not done with the passage yet. I promise it, the passage for this week doesn't end until verses, uh, verse 24. And so we've got two more verses left. And those two verses could not be more important. Let's listen into what Paul says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. That, my friends, is in the indicative mood in Greek, which is to say what we have here at the end of the passage where Paul has just exhorted us to do this, that, and the other thing, which are, again, all good things that we say amen to. At the end of the day, Paul leaves us here with the gospel. Remember what the gospel tells us. It declares what has been done for us. It declares promises made to us. And all of this is given to us by faith in Jesus Christ alone. The gospel is the good news that will empower you to do whatever Paul has 
exhorted you to do in this passage as Ron Swanson dances the happy dance because he has received good news, so too, even as we are exhorted, because we have this great promise that God will keep us blameless, that God will be faithful to us no matter what, no matter what, we can say, as we try to answer the question why this matters, we can say, because even though we've fallen short of the imperatives laid out in this text, Jesus has fulfilled them perfectly on our behalf. He has atoned completely for your sins on his cross and has risen from the dead, defeating sin, death, and hell right there forever. We can say this matters because we have been forgiven. But not just that, we are being forgiven and we will be forgiven. Folks, the words are kept blameless. Who's doing the keeping? The, the word there is passive. That means you're passive in this. God is doing the keeping. God is doing the preserving. God is the one who is, in spite of your shortcomings, going to bring you through to the end, blameless on the day of Jesus Christ. And what this means then is you are free to pursue God's will for your life as it's laid out here in Scripture, and for that matter, for your neighbor's good, what does it say again? Esteeming those in authority above you in the church, be it being at peace, admonishing, encouraging, being patient, forgiving, rejoicing, praying, giving thanks, receiving God's word and abstaining from evil. You are free to pursue those things without fear of condemnation when you fall short. The condemnation has been taken care of as Jesus Christ became sin for us on the cross. Now you're free to pursue these things without fear. It's no longer going to harm you. That's, that's the promise that's given to us in Scripture, that we will not be condemned for our sins, but we will be saved, kept blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, he who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. And that is good news as we live out God's will for our life. All right, gang, that is our long gospel devotional for today. I pray that you have been uh, blessed by this and that you uh, would have a wonderful Tuesday. God richly bless you as you go on from here.